This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, November 16th, 2022 on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Thank you for being here. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. International Education Week continues at the University of Arkansas. Each day on campus this week is shaped by a theme, like today's Let's Play theme. The campus community today has a chance to learn about childhood games from Rwanda or variations on dominoes from Panama. Tomorrow's theme is Global Flavors. It will include events sponsored by students from the University of Arkansas Rome program and an event featuring a sampling of food and drink from Argentina. More can be found at international-students.uark.edu. We'll start our show today focused on education in Arkansas with report cards, report cards for schools. This month, the Arkansas Department of Education released letter grades for each school in the state. It was the first series of grades to be released since 2019. What should we do with this information? We asked Sarah McKenzie, the executive director of the Office for Education Policy at the University of Arkansas. Similar to grades that schools give kids, it's Um, an indicator to people who are interested how well things are going. So it's an A through F. It was intended to be easy for the public and other education stakeholders to understand as an indicator of what's going on in their schools. It seems like there are two ways you can take this. There's the overall how the state of Arkansas is doing, and then you want to drill down on your school and your district. Absolutely. And overall, we did see letter grades drop quite a bit since the last time they were assigned, which was 2019, because we took a pause because, you know, COVID. Um, And there's a lot fewer A's and a lot more F's across the state, which is not surprising because we know that student achievement really declined over the course of the pandemic. And a lot of what schools are being graded on is that achievement, how many kids meet grade level expectations in reading and math on the state tests. So not surprising immediately after the COVID years, but concerning? Yes, it's absolutely concerning. And we've seen this consistently since we started testing again in 2021. We didn't give letter grades that spring, but those of us who looked at the data were like, ooh, wow, we didn't do very well, which is surprising because we were in school that whole year, unlike most other states that were working remotely. We did have some students working remotely, but the vast majority of our students were in school all day, every day. But we still saw declines comparable to what other states saw. All right. So those of us who are not professionals look at the numbers, 8% A's, more D's, more F's. We're concerned. What do you as a professional see in this report? So you should be concerned. Our reading and math performance for kids across the state is not good and declined. There has been some small improvements um, since the prior year, but I think the main takeaway is that schools are working really hard, and we're seeing schools where kids are demonstrating phenomenal growth. And by growth, I mean compared to where they were last year or two years ago, they have really, really improved in certain schools more than is typical. Do those certain schools where we've seen growth have something in common? 
Actually, they don't. So it's really interesting because achievement is how many kids are reading on grade level or doing math on grade level is, not surprisingly, highly correlated with the percentage of kids in the school that face economic instability or challenges outside of school. So if you are a school serving a high at-risk population, your achievement is going to be lower than schools serving a more advantaged student population. So that is in common with achievement. But with growth, we see schools that have very low poverty, like Haas Hall, demonstrating phenomenal growth. And then we see schools demonstrating high growth, even though they're serving highly disadvantaged populations. Will it be possible to drill down and see what's working in the schools that have shown the growth? So that's a great question. And I think that every school is doing something different. There's not a consistent model for getting high growth. It's really what's happening in the classroom all day, every day, and having sort of a system-wide focus on growing students and expectation that students are going to demonstrate growth as opposed to, you know, a single teacher in the sixth grade math class or um, a particular English teacher in the eighth grade group. So it has to be sort of a system-wide expectation. And it can be hard because so much of the grade level, the letter grade, is reflecting achievement, how many kids are on grade level. So the focus becomes, let's get these kids to grade level, which obviously you do that by growth. But also, there's kids that are already at or above grade level, and they need to grow too. So for me, I think that growth factor is the most important because it doesn't just reflect the kids you serve. It reflects how you're serving them in the school every day. Really two kinds of grades here. Yes, that is what I would think, that we should have a grade for achievement, because reading on grade level is really important. But we should also have a grade for growth, so that we can pull out and highlight those schools that are demonstrating really phenomenal improvement in student learning from one year to the next. In radio, we get ratings, and we say you don't live or die by one book, because you try to take a a multi-year snapshot. How have you been doing over the years. It sounds like this is what we should be looking at when it comes to these grades. Yeah. I mean, I think it's much more fair to look at growth because it's not so correlated with the population that you serve. Um, And I think we know it's good for kids. And that's why my office gives these OEP awards every year that recognize the schools. And many, many times it's the same schools that are in that top quartile every year. And, you know, they can be little tiny schools. They can be big schools in Springdale. They can be low poverty, high poverty. But they are just getting it done. One of the challenges with trying to figure out what makes that happen is that every school is doing it differently. So what do you and your colleagues do? with this report? So we'll, we send out awards to the schools. We post it on our website, um, oep.uark.edu. And uh, we really try to get school personnel to think deeply about growth instead of just about if their kids are on grade level or not, because we want all kids to grow. And one of the stories that I think surrounds growth is that, well, our students are already so high performing, they really can't grow anymore. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. 
because we see schools with very, very high performance also demonstrating very high growth. Not all of them, but there are those that do. So every kid can grow, and we should expect every kid to grow. What should a parent do when looking at their school's grade? So that's really a great question. Don't be distracted by the letter grade. Just like when your kid brings home their report card, you don't want the one letter grade to be indicative of them as a whole person. You sort of need to break it down like, oh, they did well on the tests, but they were having trouble with completing their homework. How can I support that? Or, oh, they did great on class participation, but they seem to struggle on the final exam. So digging into that a little bit more. And as a parent, I look at the growth scores. And if it's at or above 83, that means your school is doing phenomenally moving kids. And if it's below, you know, 77, that is concerning that you aren't seeing the same kind of growth in your school that the average school in the state is, which would be an 80. You mentioned that some schools are challenged by what's happening outside the classroom. So it seems like the big discussion about perhaps improving how we how we educate our youngest Arkansans is more than just a school discussion. If it if we're talking poverty, if we're talking you know, all sorts of issues. Absolutely. I mean, it happens all day, every day, whatever environment the student is in, they're learning. Um, and there's lots of public resources that we have, like libraries and community groups that can help support student learning. I think that, um, you know, many schools have felt that their letter grade was unfair because it was COVID. Like, what mm. were they supposed to be doing? But students in your classroom feel that way, too, when you give them a harsh grade on an assignment and they had other things going on in their life that you may not know about. So I think it's also helping teachers think a little bit more deeply about how they're assigning grades and if those grades are fair. And then we'll continue to sort of work towards clearer and more fair grading of schools as we go along. But yes, parents read to your kids, take them to the library, get books. This reading is really important. There's lots of great math resources online. If you feel like your student's not getting what they need in the classroom, you can go on Khan Academy and let them, you know, learn some new skills, or maybe you know new skills that you could teach them too. Sarah McKenzie is the executive director of the Office for Education Policy at the University of Arkansas. You can find out more about the school grades released on November 9th at oep.uark.edu. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities, including apartments, cottages, and village home living options. Information at ButterfieldTrailVillage.org. Ahead on today's show, man-made monsters. And I knew that the title story was going to be my uh, Frankenstein story. And part of that was uh, Mary Shelley. (laughs) And part of it was um, growing up post-Mary Shelley. And, you know, she's basically like the first sci-fi writer and the first horror writer in some ways. And so because she does both with Frankenstein. Writer Andrea L. Rogers discusses her collection of short stories, a collection that embraces terrors both fictional and real. Our conversation in fewer than 15 minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. One of the hallmarks of the African and African American Studies program at the University of Arkansas is the study abroad semester in Ghana. 
In the latest episode of Undiscipline, host Dr. Karee Banton and I talked to Kim Jansen, a postgrad student who went on the first trip to Ghana coordinated by the university. Okay, so you ended up um, also as a part of the program. You ended up going to Ghana twice in the study abroad program. I did. I really did. It was amazing. Oh, my goodness. So how did you learn about the study abroad program? And how did you decide that you wanted to be a part of it? Well, I was um, I was part of the Pioneer Group um, in 2010, and... I was in the program at this point, two years, and so what it it was just, I think it was just through a course or a class that I was in that it was being uh, mentioned or advertised, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try it, you know, and then I applied for the study abroad scholarship. I got it. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to go out, you know, because it was one of the most eye-opening experiences that I have had ever. And so I think once I I knew for sure that I was going, it was my son's first birthday. Um, He hadn't even turned one yet. But I started just kind of processing that even before, you know, we go, we had a a two-week course or, um, no, I'm sorry, it was a week and a half class here prior to leaving for Ghana just to kind of get us, you know, prepare us for it. And I think in that period of time, like I was asking friends what, you know, I'm and even sharing with them, I'm going to Ghana. And it was this preconceived notion that they don't like us. They don't like African-Americans, you know. That Ghanaians don't like African-Americans? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, okay. Why? Why did they say that Ghanaians don't like, like, what was the reason? <laughs> that they I don't even know that it was a valid reason, but just because we are American, that we don't essentially know our history. Ah, okay. So it was, yeah, okay. And so that was something that, but it, it wasn't my experience. It, that was not my experience at all. And so even like Sadia Hartman and her experience, I just, you know, how... She goes back and she's looking for this thing that she feels like she's missing, this loss of kinship. And I think in in a sense, that's kind of what, you know, it was going back to the motherland, going back to the land that created you. Um, and so in a sense, rekindling that loss was really big in both of the experiences. What trepidations did you have before going the plane ride, hey. <laughs> had you been on a plane ride before that? Had you been on I a... had, but not across the ocean. Yeah, ah, <laughs> okay. So that's that's normal. <laughs> that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, I think it was an eighteen hour flight. Um but that was I just went to sleep. You know, I think I put got put on the book of Eli with Denzel Washington and <laughs> just went to But I think I, I don't really think that I had fears. Did you think you were going to get malaria? Did you think like, oh, my God, what if I don't like the food? What if I get sick? Oh, my God. You know, all these. Or even or even the other side of like, what if I've built it up too much in my head and it doesn't meet expectations? Did you have any of those sorts of worries? No. I, and I think that it exceeded because or exceeded my expectations. I don't think that I knew the extent of the culture 
I don't think that I, I didn't have any fear though. I was, it was more just an excitement. But I think once I got there, it was learning about the culture, the fashion, the barter system, the um, the amount, uh, the immense taste in the food. Like everything is sweeter, everything is fresher, and so I think that when I did get there, really surprised me because. I think we, you know, people think of Africa in this monolithic form of, or I mean, I don't know, uh, but just don't think of the um, Ghana as being diverse uh, or Africa being um, culturally diverse. And so I think it was just, it was more excitement. And even while I was there, I think I just wasn't afraid of it. I was home. I don't know. I remember when I first studied abroad, um, well, I, I had studied abroad previously in Austria, and that was an interesting experience for me as a student. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, I was going to go to Austria, I was going to go to Vienna, I was going to become a human rights lawyer in the UN and all of this kind of stuff, and just like the language of German and, you know, trying to understand that and communicate with the, and with the people and the culture. And that was, that was something. So that was 2006. And then I went to Ghana in 2011. And I remember I didn't have any trepidation at all. Like it, maybe it was what Matthew said. I built it up too much in my head. That was my issue, mm-hmm. you know, because, I mean, in Jamaica, everything is about Africa. You know, with the Rastafarians, you know, with Pan-Africanism and Garveyism, yeah. everything is about repatriation to the motherland. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I mean, I had like grow, I had grown up like, you know, even though I went to highfalutin boarding school and whatnot, I was the rebel that was like, yeah, I'm with the Rastas. <laughs> yeah, whatever the Rastas is on, I'm on that, <laughs> you know. And so it because they were like as you're at your bougie boarding school. As <laughs> I'm at my bougie boarding school, it's like yes, we're bringing in, uh, we're bringing in, <laughs> bringing in an expert to teach you proper <laughs> etiquette. <laughs> I'm like, what are the rest is doing, <laughs> you know? But I remember just thinking that I have to mark the occasion. I had built it up so much in my head, like oh my god, like the oceans are going to rise to meet me. Like, Mm. it's going to be this great, glorious thing. And the ground is going to feel, like, so great when I touch down the first time and my foot touched the soil, you Mm. know? And I was telling my family, who had all gathered around, it's like, I think I'm going to eat some dirt when I get there the first time. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to bend down, pick up some dirt and (laughs) eat it or eat the piece of grass just to mark, you know, the the solemnity of the occasion, right? So I had built it up in my head so much because, you know, I got a scholarship and the scholarship didn't expect me to go to Africa. Mm. Just to show you how these things work, right? They expected me to go to Cambridge and Oxford. Mm. And I'm like, ah, I'm going to Ghana. Right. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. And so, <laughs> so I had, like, that's, that's how much I'm like, this is where I wanted to be. Yeah. And so I had built it up pretty big in my head. Uh, so, yes, I was excited, too, like you, Kim. How was the grass? Um, I didn't eat the grass once I got there. <laughs> 
because my family made me swear not to do it. No, that's fair. Yeah, because I, I, I was a little bit sick before I left. So they're like, yes, yeah, go over there and fall out. <laughs> Eating grass and dirt with your foolish self, you know. So I didn't. I didn't do that. But I was. I just remember when I saw Aquaba, which means welcome. And I mean, you grew up reading about Kwame Nkrumah, and grew up reading about Ghana, and you know the motherland, right? So you just felt like I. Maybe it was in my head, but maybe it's also a part of the tourism um, apparatus of the country that I just felt like this being enveloped, you know? Some top-notch propaganda there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Ghana fancy themselves as being the gateway to Africa. You can hear more about Kim's story, including her experience as the first member of her family to graduate from college, on the full episode of the podcast. Undiscipline is a production of KUAF Public Radio, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. Our year ain't over yet. After a short break, the KUAF Lunch Hour is back. For the month of November, the Lunch Hour, bringing together the best in area music and food, will feature artist Jackson Hoyt and the tasty creations from Girls Gone Barbecue. Raised in the Arkansas Ozarks, Jackson Hoyt pairs his lonesome folk songs with a steady, gentle voice, adding hints of bluegrass, jazz, and western noir, music perfect for the season. Girls Gone Barbecue is one of Northwest Arkansas's newest eateries. GGBBQ offers Arkansas Delta Fair using many local ingredients and producers, including the Sister Rosetta Tharp Chop, Barbecue Frito Pie, and of course, the Arkansasage. Music from Jackson Hoyt, food from Girls Gone Barbecue, and it's all free. The KUAF Lunch Hour, November 18th. Doors open at noon. Music begins around 12.15. To register, eventbrite.com and search The Lunch Hour. Lunch hour, an example that not everything we do at KUAF is immediately on the air. Mm-hmm. Case in point, you participated, Matthew, in a, uh, a panel conversation recently. That's right, yes. Uh, Dr. Angie Maxwell, a professor at the University of Arkansas, and Michael Hiblin, the news director at KUAR down in Little Rock. Uh, the three of us participated in a conversation with the Arkansas Humanities Council talking about news people who make news, who, you know, do reporting and politics. And how do you uh, talk about these sorts of things in a way that gets across the point to uh, listeners and to your audiences? Um, What is actually happening in the news? We talked a little bit about polling and kind of how polling can be a little misguiding for some folks. Um, So it was a really interesting conversation. Um, and it was nice to be the least smart person in a room. I always like panels that way when I'm the least intelligent in the panel. <laughs> There's the old uh, hypothetical question. You work with 99 other people. Would you rather be the smartest person w- there or the least smart? And mine always, always, always never want to, I never want to be the smartest person. Absolutely not. And that's fine. Because, yes, speaking of yes. being the least smart person in a panel, you were oh, on one as goodness. well. I was uh, Sarah Dennison, who is a professor of communications at the University of Arkansas, asked myself and three other people uh, to talk to her class about interviewing. And this took all kinds of interview um, options, whether it's a job interview, whether you're trying to get an oral history from your family member. It was last Friday. Mm-hmm. And it was so much fun. And I think the panelists, we all learned from each other. The students asked amazing questions. And uh, thanks to Sarah Dennison and her class for asking me 
to do that. Yeah. Unfortunately, the two of us were on a podcast together, and I think we both tied for the smartest people <laughs> on that panel. Yeah. Um, you and I were a part of the Startup Junkie podcast. Um, Which was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a really great conversation with our friends uh, Caleb and Jeff at Startup Junkie to kind of talk about what does it look like to make a daily radio show, how is podcast changed the way that we produce radio, or how has it kind of informed other people's uh, ways of making podcasts as well. Um, and uh, it was a really insightful conversation, I think. And that's available. You can you can watch it even, right? It's one of those podcasts. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. you can watch it. <laughs> uh, is the, the conversation you did with Angie and Michael Hiblin from KUAR, is it available yet? It will be very okay. soon, and you'll be able to watch that one as well. And later today, I do want a quick shout out. I'll be with Jacqueline House from KNWA. We're co-hosting the Northwest Arkansas Observation of National Philanthropy Day. That's happening across the street at uh, the Fayetteville Public Library. And later this month on the 29th, you will be moderating a conversation with Fran Leibowitz at yes, Walnut Center. Yes, supposed to happen last February. Yeah. It snowed. So now it's going to take place November 29th, which means i got to get all prepared all over again. What is, uh, do you get nervous when you talk to really, really famous people like Depends that? who the person is. I will tell you that Fran Lebowitz, who, you know, is razor smart and rapier wit, and I'm anxious. I think I'm using that actually in its correct, I am anxious about the conversation that will take place. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it, but yeah. That's uh, the 29th at Walton Arts Center. That's right. Hey, y'all. I'm Joe McGowan. I'm a licensed professional counselor with the Joshua Center, co-director of Resilient Black Women Incorporated, and the co-host of the podcast Resilient Black Women here at KUAF. And I'm so excited to let you know about a live meditation experience that I am doing in partnership with Crystal Bridges. This event happens two times in November, November 12th and November 19th, 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. It only costs $5 to join. You do need to register ahead of time and catch some really cool videos about me on Instagram as I'll be sharing some videos about meditation just to encourage people to come out. So I hope to see you soon. November 19th from 1030 to 1130 a.m. at Crystal Bridges. Meet me in the gallery. I'll see you there. You can register at crystalbridges.org. For the Resilient Black Women podcast, just go to our website, KUAF.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Andrea Rogers inhabits her short stories in her collection, Man-Made Monsters, with horrors, fictional and real. You meet vampires, werewolves, and other beasts. And there are the historical horrors of attempted cultural genocide and the very personal terrors created by poor decisions. Man-Made Monsters is 18 stories taking place over two centuries, connected by a family through line. Andrea Rogers, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, grew up in Tulsa and now is an English Ph.D. student at the University of Arkansas. She says she's long held a fascination for monsters, perhaps spurred by watching the Plenty Scary movie on Tulsa TV with her father. The tales in Mad Made Monsters veer from a 19th century Cherokee family trying to outrace a vampire to a high school werewolf trying to protect his sister in the story Shame on the Moon. Last week, Andrea Rogers came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. She says she knew early in the development of the 18-story collection she wanted each to be connected by a single family tree. You know, when I went to high school, one of the first Southern writers I really was exposed to was William Faulkner, and he had Yonknatapa County. And in it, like, you would read a story and be like, oh, wait, that person's related to that person. 
or they're growing up in the same town. And Louise Erdrich does the same thing with her families um, growing up in that area. And so when you read Love Medicine, I mean, everybody's connected somehow. So I think in some ways I didn't know, I, I couldn't see telling a story without those connections. And so when I was writing the short stories, I, I always thought of these characters as related somehow. And another, I was talking to, well, and I have a cousin and she and I are 10 years apart. Her dad is my dad's little brother. Her dad went to Vietnam. My dad avoided it by playing in the Air Force Band and being stationed in Seattle or Lake Moses. And so, but when my cousin and I would get together, we're a lot alike. I mean, it's like she's my sister. And so there's something about being raised by people who were all in the same family, even though they were given different circumstances, that I think makes us a multiverse. And so it's like, well, if I had grown up here, maybe, you know, I would make those same choices. And so I could sort of pretend that like, well, if I got turned into a vampire, this is what I would do. (laughs) And so... The, the In the book, Mad Main Monsters, there are short stories, and the tone, I am amazed at how different the tone can be from story to story. The juxtaposition between, uh, I mentioned earlier, Shame on the Moon, which has some really scary incidents in it, but before that was uh, Me and My Monster, which <sighs> is just this wonderful sort of poignant story about a star-crossed love between a human girl and something else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um... I think part of, I mean, I was that kid who liked to take tests. I was that kid who liked getting writing assignments where they'd say, okay, write from the point of view of, you know, a salesman trying to sell, you know, shoes or whatever. And um, I always enjoyed tasks like that. And so sometimes I guess I had to give myself those tasks. So when I was thinking about the book, I actually knew the title was going to be Man Made Monsters. Uh, before I ever wrote Man-Made Monsters, the the title Mm -hmm. story. And I knew that the title story was going to be my uh, Frankenstein story. And part of that was uh, Mary Shelley. (laughs) And part of it was um, growing up post-Mary Shelley. And, you know, she's basically like the first sci-fi writer and the first horror writer in some ways. And so, because she does both with Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. And then she has another story, The Last Man, which goes into the future, which I didn't even know about until a few years ago. And so I was a big fan of Shelley. And so and I was growing up and I guess I graduated from high school. And no, I know I graduated from high school in 1997. <laughs> but it was like they were doing all these gothic movies sort of about they were sort of romantic about the Shelleys and and Lord Byron and like the uh, his poem. She walks in beauty like light of cloudless climbs and starry skies and all that's fair dark and light is in her essence and her eyes was the first poem I ever memorized and so I liked Byron um, and until I learned more about him yeah. <laughs> and so you know because we all do until we find out how I, the toxic masculinity yes. raises its ugly head but I stayed a fan of Mary and the fact that she wrote Frankenstein at 18 um, it just you know it was it was a goal, and then S.E. Hinton comes along and writes The Outsiders by eighteen, and so those are definitely two people who heavily influenced what I thought I was going to do with my life. In your Frankenstein story, you do Shelley proud because there are some scary moments. I think of when the frog, or the toad, right, <laughs> comes to life, <laughs> and I don't want to give too much away to readers, <laughs> but but you do it in a in a in a economy of words. Thank you. And and I love foreshadowing because um, a character is writing letters 
There's a line, I'm not going to remember it verbatim, but something like, I wish I could write that that was the worst that I had done. <laughs> I wish that was the worst thing I had to tell you. Yes. Something like that. Yes. So. That's, that's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> right? Somebody calls you or texts you that, and they've already told you this horrific story, and then they're like, you know. I wish that was the worst I had to tell you. I wish that was the worst thing I'd ever done. Um, there's a book by Peter Straub called Ghost Story. And um, the first line is just, I've never forgotten it. And I'm probably going to get it wrong, though. But it's something about like, well, I won't tell you the worst thing I've ever done. But I'll tell you the worst thing I ever saw or something like that. And so, so I mean, there's several things up to the imagination, which is he's about to tell you a really horrific story. But what's the worst thing he's ever done? Right, <laughs> I mean, right. so what's left to the imagination? So, First lines are so important in any sort of, whether it's a letter or a novel, but in short stories, I think they're especially. And you've got some brilliant ones here. And I think of American Predators. And it's this 19-year-old young woman who's uh, in a kind of sleazy hotel room. And she's going back over what she's done what mistakes has she made to lead her to this point? And you're instantly hooked. And you, I instantly identified with her. Right. So how long do you work on a first line? Ooh, um, sometimes first lines are the first thing that come to me. And then I just sort of jump off from there. Um, sometimes, um, actually, for my first story, um, in the very first story, which is uh, an old-fashioned girl, um, I had written the story – and then I actually was in a workshop with Tiffany Lau, who was Angeline Bully's editor, and she was talking about the importance of first lines. And so, you know, she was asking questions like, what is your what what does your character want? What's keeping them from getting what they want? You know, what are their their what's the problem? And so and how sometimes, you know, sometimes that doesn't show up till later, but sometimes you need it like right off the bat. And so with that story, I did need that right off the bat because I, I I try I try not to be too pedantic, but there is a little bit of a history lesson there because people just don't know what was going on with the Cherokees in Texas in 1839, and I didn't know for a long time. So it was wasn't until I moved to Texas that I knew about the massacre of Chief Bowles and his people on July 16th, 1839. And so, but I knew about the removal of the Cherokees, but again, I didn't know the depth of it as far as history is concerned. Um, I didn't know about the internment camps and in on the Trail of Tears. I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know this details. And so when I went and read Conquest of Texas, um, Ethnic Cleansing in a Promised Land, I learned about the history of the indigenous people, not just Cherokees, the Lipan Apache, the Apache, the Comanche, um, all the various tribes that were there the, um, that I didn't know anything about it. And so so I had to start with with a line that lets you know, this is where we're going, but let's see how we got there. Of course, Man-Made Monsters has monsters. But like all great horror movie, uh, horror stories or movies, there are real horrors that are really scary, be it regret or attempts at cultural or ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. And those are the horrors that really stay with you from these stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, vampires and zombies and werewolves are scary. But it's the underlying themes you have there. Yeah, and I think part of that, again, we're um, going back to Mary Shelley and when she's writing her story and she's just lost a baby, right? And she's she's had this child before she's even 18. And, you know, she's, you know, she's talked about having a dream where the baby is still alive, right? And I thought, you know, and 
and I thought, you know, how horrific. I mean, the grief that you would feel. I mean, of course you would want them to come back. Of course you would want them, you you to have made other choices that maybe would have kept them alive. And then what do you do with that moving forward? The first story, when when it's a family separated and, and you have this um, – this trail, this, this this sort of train of Texas Rangers and white men who are wanting to eradicate uh, members of this family. That's scarier, almost scarier than the the, the German <laughs> doctor who shows up. Right, because um, on you know on one level we're talking about the you know the whole what well, we're talking about genocide. Mm-hmm. We're talking about eliminating people because of greed because you want what they have or because you're afraid of them. And so in your mind, you've made them monstrous. And so it's okay to kill them all. And so, and that was very much, you know, the, the philosophy at that time. I mean, there, you know, the only good Indians, a dead Indian, it didn't matter if they were Cherokee and, and, maybe semi-friendly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't matter if they were Apache, if they were Comanche. It didn't matter that you were starving the Dakota. And, you know, that's why they have an uprising. And, you know, they're having to watch their children die because they don't have enough food because, you know, they've been denied their rations or given bad rations or they're only allowed to hunt on a tiny strip of land and they can't feed their families on that. You know, those are all, you know, these huge horrors that are just sort of because they're just accepted. Um, and so... So, yeah, definitely. I definitely wanted to remind people of that because, again, it's like, what choices have we made to get us where we are today? This reminds me of two of the characters in American Predators, Billy and Wit. And they're not likable people. And they are uh, taking advantage and trying to, you know, um, make profit off of Native cultures. And something bad happened. And this isn't a spoiler alert because once you've gotten to the middle of the book, you know that endings here have a chance to to not be um, good. Is it wrong that the way that story ends, I'm okay. I'm kind of okay with. Um, I think it's satisfying because in the the beginning of the book, I have an epigraph written by Heidi Altman and Tom Belt, and it talks about balance and. When I, I was putting the collection together, I think I had written 13 of the stories. I was taking – I was in a Cherokee language group uh, with Eva Groot, and they were studying Brad Anderson's great book on Cherokee language, which is really intricate. <laughs> and, and he's way smarter than I am. But she introduced us to um, this essay, uh, Reading History Through a Cherokee Lens. And it just emphasizes, like, how your culture is also built into your language. And so one of the things they talked about, though, was um, when the world is out of balance, bad things happen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so and so that the world was – the world of your ancestors was out of balance, and that's still here. And so history is not really something that used to happen. It's something that's happening. And so it's not in the past. It's always with us. And so for me, I thought that's what horror is, right? Horror is when the world is out of balance. And in some ways, horror is trying to reset the balance, so sometimes it's like, well, that's okay. <laughs> so this is how we get there sometimes. This is also a beautiful book. The cover, the illustration. I can't some, take credit for that. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> Tell me about the illustrator. Okay, Jeff Edwards works for Cherokee Nation, and he's a graphic designer, and he works in language. And, and language is important to me, but I would say it's been important to Jeff for a very long time. It took me a while to realize I needed to go, I, that I really, really, really wanted to be somewhere where I could learn my language. And so, um, but Jeff's been doing it for a long time. He's been learning from speakers for a long time. He's been friends with speakers for a long time. And it's super important to him to, to portray things in a way that reflects not just the language. Well, because the language does reflect the culture. Mm-hmm. So um, he's just amazing. He's got some art at Spider Art Gallery there in Tahlequah. And I had seen his art and liked his art. And then I went by uh, and visited. I've written a book for a heart drum called When We Gather, which is about wild onion dinners. So a lot of the southeastern tribes do wild onion dinners every spring. And it's a you know, good way to gather. They raise money. Churches have them. Community centers have them. And everybody gets together and, and visits and eats. And it's just a big celebration. And so... Um, I went by to see Ed Fields because I do have some Cherokee words in this picture book. And Ed Fields is a teacher. He's an expert on Cherokee. And so I was asking him, am I using this right? Is this the form I would use? Because Cherokee is super complicated. There are words that have like 21 different forms. It's it's intense. So kiddos, go learn your language now. <laughs> and so while your brain is really malleable. And so he said, well, go next door and get some posters because um, they Cherokee Nation, may, they are putting a lot of money and energy and effort into keeping Cherokee alive and revitalizing it. Um, we're down like 2000 speakers. And so um, I saw Sammy Still, who's a storyteller and a marble maker last night. And he said, you know, we're looking at a future. We're looking at, you know, when I'm gone, when he's gone, um, we're not going to have people who learned the language growing up. Everyone's going to have learned, you know, everyone's going to be a second language learner. And that's immensely sad to me. And so, but what Jeff does supports that. And he supports those speakers who are teaching it and to whom it's really important. And I think that's I think that comes out in his work. And so um, I had asked him if he would do it. And he's like, "Mm, I have a day job. (laughs) I have insurance. I don't really need to do that. Um, And he's like, that's just sort of, you know, extra money. I don't really need to do that. And um, I said, well, I'm I'm probably going to sell it. I said, if I sell it, I'm going to get back in touch with you because <laughs> he, he said no, basically. And so the next time I um, – so then I did sell it. And so I went by and I had already given him a copy of Mary and the Trail of Tears to let him read to just sort of introduce myself to him and see where I'm coming from. And where I'm coming from is at 53, I have a much deeper understanding of my culture and my history. And I'm indebted to my tribe. I'm indebted to my ancestors. They made a lot of choices that allow me to be here. And so um, so sort of, you know, to let him see what, you know, where I was coming from. And so um, I visited him again, and I had bought a piece of his art at Spider Art Gallery the time before, and I was like, I didn't even realize that was yours. And I was like, are you sure you don't want to do it? And he's like, mm, yeah, I don't know. And so I said, tell you what, I'm going to send you a copy of the story. And I said, and I'll pay you to just read it because I haven't had any people who are involved in Cherokee language like you are read the story yet read the stories yet and I said I would if I'll pay you to read it and so if you know and if you want to do it great and if you still don't want to do it that's fine I'll but I'll pay you as a consultant right and so I sent it to him and um, he read it that weekend and then he went back and he started with each story and started making art and I was like hold on (laughs) let's get a contract for you Um, anyway, and what was wonderful is my editor, Nick Thomas, was on board um, after seeing Jeff's artwork. 
And um, and Jeff just he did a splendid job. He pulled threads out of the story that I didn't even realize how important they were. This is a fantastic, fantastic book. Congratulations. What? Oh, it's a triumph. And um, I always I knew there's a chance I was going to like it because I love to see a map or a family tree before I start. And it just tells me that there's going to be a world built here. And that's what you did. Yep. Yep. And so um, asking about, oh, actually, I did try a couple of variations with the stories as far as like um, my original version was was chronological because that seemed to make the most sense and the Mm -hmm. easiest. And then I also thought about flipping it and going backwards because I, I was a little concerned about people being introduced to characters while they're younger because we know what happens when they get older, right? And so there's an inevitability to it. And I didn't want it to be like a book that was a tra- tragedy, right? Because that's not what it is. Our trauma doesn't define us. Right. We're impacted by it. But this is, book is about survival. This book is about final girls. <laughs> and this book is about rewriting all the stories they've written about us and through our, our point of view. Andrea L. Rogers' collection of short stories is man-made monsters. Her other books include Mary and the Trail of Tears, a Cherokee removal survival story. That book was named an NPR Best Book of 2020 and a Best Book of the Year by American Indians in Children's Literature. You can find out more at AndreaLRogers.com. She came to the Carver Center for Public Radio last week. Modern Roots country music artist Tyler Childers brings his Sending in the Hounds tour to the Walmart Amp in Rogers, along with Texas native country and American artists Charlie Crockett and Wayne Graham, Saturday, April 22nd. Tickets available at 479-443-5600 or amptickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large, the Cafe Novice Creative Forces Culinary Program for Veterans, an intensive two-week educational cooking and food writing residency is currently taking place at Mount Sequoia Community Center. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich met with a program coordinator and a teacher to bring us this story. Cafe is short for culinary arts, food experience, and writing. Novice is short for nourishing our veterans in creative expression. This two-week-long Cafe Novice Kitchen Skills and Writing Residency at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville started November 7th and culminates this weekend with a community dinner. More about that in a few minutes. This novel residency is being guided by local caterer and veteran Nate Walls, guest food writer and chef Michael Polferis is teaching about food presentation and documentation. Kitchen chef and culinary school instructor Rebecca Lyles is sharing her experience as a professional kitchen chef, and noted author Crescent Dragon Wagon is teaching elements from her deep feast, writing the world through food. Seated in the dining hall after class, Jessica Dabari, director of creative spaces at Mount Sequoia's Cafe Novice, is a new grant venture. We thought, well, what what are the strengths of what we do at Mount Sequoia that could help the veterans community? And um, it just so happens that our COO is a trained chef, and, and we have this wonderful, huge kitchen here in the dining hall, professional kitchen. And there's a lot of creative expression in food. Um, so we thought, why not create a culinary residency that kind of looks at all aspects of the culinary experience 
Dubari partnered with Veterans Whole Health Program Facilitator Laura Pogue at Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville, who located six veterans willing to participate in the residency. So it it's means that it's a residency model in the sense that it is all-day classes for two whole weeks. So we are starting the second week. So it's writing, it's time in the kitchen all day. Culinary classes and programs are often expensive, Dabari says, but this residency for veterans with an interest, talent, and passion for the culinary arts is free of charge. So the goal of this program was to maybe inspire a new passion for the veterans to if either uh, find a new career or infuse what they do and make at home with more uh, passion and more knowledge. So they will come away with from this program with more focused writing skills, with, with more knowledge of the culinary arts and more knowledge of how to present meals as well. Culinary arts, of course, includes culinary writing, a practice and profession Crescent Dragon Wagon is sharing with veterans across five two-hour sessions. I knew I would teach both recipe writing and some things about writing in general. And the way that that would take shape would be based on interaction with my students, what they felt were their strong points, what they felt were their hesitations, what they wanted to get out of it. And so, you know, I've been doing this for a while, (laughs) and I'm very good at skating with what my students need, what their particular needs are. Dragon Wagon, who turned 70 this autumn, teaches what she often refers to as fearless writing to all kinds of populations. Often they carry a burden of what they have experienced, and in writing I can help individuals, whether they loosely fall into the category of veterans, uh, kids in reform school, prisoners, victims of sexual abuse, um, childhood sexual abuse, cancer survivors, hospice survivors, widows, all of those are groups that I have worked with. Cafe Novice is supported by the Creative Forces Military Healing Arts Network, an initiative of the National Endowment for the Arts in partnership with the U.S. Department of Defense and Veterans Affairs. Creative Forces works to improve the health, well-being, and quality of life for military and veteran populations exposed to trauma, as well as their families and caregivers, through creative arts therapies. Creative Forces is managed in partnership with Americans for the Arts, the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine, and Mid-America Arts Alliance. Jessica Dabari invites the public to celebrate completion of the Cafe Novice course this Sunday at 5 p.m. with a local farm-to-table harvest meal centered on original recipes created by participant veterans. Each table will seat members of the general community with members of the veteran community. The entire course is two weeks long and it will culminate this Sunday with a community dinner that is going to be prepared by the vets. It is a multi-course seasonal 
dinner. We're, we're going to have some butternut squash in there, some seasonal roasted vegetables, some really delicious offerings. And half of the tickets are free and will go to the veterans community. And there are paid tickets for only $25 to the, the civilian community. Seating is limited. Tickets are available through mountsequoia.networkforgood.com. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a safe place for a supportive Thanksgiving meal. You know, my heart is with the queer community as a member of the queer community, and in particular, um, our transgender friends and our non-binary friends. Um, This was created out of a spirit of making sure they had a place to be, um, that they got loved on. Um, But really, um, we want anyone who doesn't feel comfortable in their home or with their family of origin on that day, for whatever reason, to come and join us. The second annual Friendsgiving will be at the Botanical Garden of the Ozarks on Thanksgiving night. We learn more tomorrow at noon and seven and at any time with the Ozarks at Large podcast. So there's this free spirit that still permeates New Orleans society, the true melting pot where people really did get together. And, you know, getting together doesn't mean that we always have to agree. We don't even have to like each other. It's just a question of being respectful of what we all have to contribute. And that's what we have here in New Orleans. Join me for an interview with Delphio Marsalis. I'm Robert Ginsburg. This week on Shades of Jazz. Shades of Jazz, Friday night at 10 on 91.3 KUAF, Saturday morning beginning at 11 on KUAF 3. The Fort Smith Regional Art Museum will host landscape artist Joan Irish tomorrow night for a free in-person lecture. The lecture is in conjunction with her current exhibition, Landscapes Near and Far at the Ram. Her talk begins at 6 tomorrow night and no registration is required. Her exhibition will be at the museum through January 15th. Northwest Arkansas Community College will host the Eagle 5K and Fun Run on the college's Bentonville campus Saturday morning. Money raised from the event will be directed toward the college's cross-country program. The one-mile fun run walk begins at 8.30 a.m. and the 5K race begins at 9 a.m. You can find out all the race details at nwac.edu slash eagle 5K. The lights of the Ozarks will officially start shining Friday night at 6 on the Fayetteville Square. From then until January 1st, the lights will be turned on in every evening from 5 until 1 a.m. There are other events associated with the annual celebration, and you can find out more at experiencefayetteville.com. And Bentonville Mayor Stephanie Orman will flip the switch to illuminate the Bentonville Square at 6 Saturday night. Holiday-related festivities will begin Saturday afternoon at 4. Springdale's Christmas on the Creek, complete with a hot cocoa crawl and a team of cycling Santas, will be Saturday the 26th, the weekend after Thanksgiving. It's an all-day affair that culminates with the Parade of the Ozarks at 6 that night. A full schedule can be found at downtownspringdale.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lost City, Oklahoma. I am Matthew Moore. I produce today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 inside the Carver Center for Public Radio. Contributors today included Karee Banton and Jacqueline Froelich. I'm Kyle Kellums. We will talk to you again very soon.